and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art, and Merry Christmas. Uh, today is Christmas Eve. We have finally made it to what I think is the best day of the year. This Christmas season has gone by so quickly for me, which is ironic considering we actually have had a longer time period between Christmas and Thanksgiving, but this is why I like to start celebrating even as far back as June, July, you know, acknowledging Christmas throughout the year because time does go so quickly. And if I had waited until after Thanksgiving to try to do all the traditions and listen to all the music and watch all the movies that I like to watch before Christmas, I just would not have had time. Thank you for all of my listeners who have made this season extra special. We've had some incredible download numbers this month, and it excites me to see that every year I get more than the year before, and that this community is growing, and there's such um, encouragement and positivity among you all. You know, I haven't had to block anyone or remove you from the community or anything. It's just been truly one of the most positive experiences of my life, and, and I don't mean to sound like I'm overselling that there. Um, all right, but today we're going to finish up our story. A delightful Christmas Eve story. I hope that you are able to find some time today or tomorrow to listen to this or, or sometime in the next week. Christmas doesn't end on December 25th, at least not in, not in my life. And I hope this will bring you some Christmas cheer. So I invite you to sit down here by the Christmas fire. Here's some eggnog, some tea, coffee. I've got plenty of cookies left in the kitchen. Help yourself. As we finish up the story, Christmas at Thompson Hall by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 4. Mrs. Brown Does Escape It had been visible to Mrs. Brown from the first moment of her arrival on the ground floor that something was the matter if we may be allowed to use such a phrase, and she felt all but convinced that this something had reference to her. She fancied that the people of the hotel were looking at her as she swallowed, or tried to swallow, her coffee. When her husband was paying the bill, there was something disagreeable in the eye of the man who was taking the money. Her sufferings were very great, and no one sympathized with her. Her husband was quite at his ease, except that he was complaining of the cold. When she was anxious to get him out into the carriage, he still stood there leisurely, arranging shawl after shawl around his throat. "'You can do that quite as well in the omnibus,' she had just said to him very crossly, when there appeared upon the scene through a side door that very porter whom she dreaded with a soiled pocket handkerchief in his hand. Even before the sound of her own name met her ears, Mrs. Brown knew it all. She understood the full horror of her position from that man's hostile face and from the little article which he held in his hand. If during the watches of the night she had had money in her pocket, if she had made a friend of this greedy fellow by well-timed liberality, all might have been so different. But she reflected that she had allowed him to go unfeed after all his trouble, and she knew that he was her enemy. It was the handkerchief that she feared. She thought that she might have brazened out anything but that, 
No one had seen her enter or leave that strange man's room. No one had seen her dip her hands in that jar. She had, no doubt, been found wandering about the house while the slumberer had been made to suffer so strangely. And there might have been suspicion and perhaps accusation but she would have been ready for frequent protestations to deny all charges made against her. And though no one might have believed her, no one could have convicted her. Here, however, was evidence against which she would be unable to stand for a moment. At the first glance, she acknowledged the potency of that damning morsel of linen. During all the horrors of the night, she had never given a thought to the handkerchief, and yet she ought to have known that the evidence it would bring against her was palpable and certain. Her name, M. Brown, was plainly written on the corner. What a fool she had been not to have thought of this, had she but remembered the plain marking which she, as a careful, well-conducted British matron, had put upon all her clothes. She would at any hazard have recovered the article. Oh, that she had waked the man, or bribed the porter, or even told her husband. But now she was, as it were, friendless, without support, without a word that she could say in her own defense, convicted of having committed this assault upon a strange man as he slept in his own bedroom, and then of having left him. The thing must be explained by the truth, but how to explain such truth, how to tell such story in a way to satisfy injured folk, and she with barely time sufficient to catch the train. Then it occurred to her that they could have no legal right to stop her because the pocket handkerchief had been found in the strange gentleman's bedroom. Yes, it is mine, she said, turning to her husband as the porter, with a loud voice, asked if she were not Madame Brown. Take it, Charles, and come on. Mr. Brown naturally stood still in astonishment. He did put out his hand, but the porter would not allow the evidence to pass so readily out of his custody. What does it all mean? asked Mr. Brown. Uh, a gentleman has been, uh, uh, something has been done to a gentleman in his bedroom, said the clerk. Something done to a gentleman? repeated Mr. Brown. Something very bad, something very bad indeed, said the porter. Look here, and he showed the condition of the handkerchief. Charles, we shall lose the train, said the affrighted wife. What the mischief does it all mean? demanded the husband. Did madame go into the gentleman's room? asked the clerk. Then there was an awful silence and all eyes were fixed upon the lady. What does it all mean? demanded the husband. Did you go into anybody's room? I did. I did, said Mrs. Brown with much dignity, looking round upon her enemies as a stag at bay look upon the hounds which are attacking him. Give me the handkerchief. But the night porter quickly put it behind his back. Charles, we cannot allow ourselves to be delayed. You shall write a letter to the keeper of the hotel explaining it all. Then she essayed to swim out through the front door into the courtyard in which the vehicle was waiting for them. But three or four men and women interposed themselves, and even her husband did not seem quite ready to continue his journey. Tonight is Christmas Eve, said Mrs. Brown. And we shall not be at Thompson Hall. Think of my sister. Why did you go into that man's bedroom, my dear? whispered Mr. Brown in English. But the porter heard the whisper and understood the language. The porter, who had not been tipped. Yes, why? 
asked the porter. It was a mistake, Charles. There's not a moment to lose. I can explain it all to you in the carriage. Then the clerk suggested that Madame had better postpone her journey a little. The gentleman upstairs had certainly been very badly treated and had demanded to know why so great an outrage had been perpetrated. The clerk said that he did not wish to send for the police. Here Mrs. Brown gasped terribly and threw herself on her husband's shoulder, but he did not think that he could allow the party to go till the gentleman upstairs had received some satisfaction. It had now become clearly impossible that the journey could be made by the early train. Even Mrs. Brown gave it up herself and demanded of her husband that she should be taken back to her bedroom. But what is to be said to the gentleman? asked the porter. Of course it was impossible that Mrs. Brown should be made to tell her story there in the presence of them all. The clerk, when he found he had succeeded in preventing her from leaving the house, was satisfied with the promise from Mr. Brown that he would inquire from his wife what were these mysterious circumstances, and would then come down to the office and give some explanation. If it were necessary, he would see the strange gentleman, whom he now ascertained to be a certain Mr. Jones, returning from the east of Europe. He learned also that this Mr. Jones had been most anxious to travel by that very morning train which he and his wife had intended to use, that Mr. Jones had been most particular in giving his orders accordingly, but that at the last moment he had declared himself to be unable even to dress himself because of the injury which had been done him during the night. When Mr. Brown heard this from the clerk just before he was allowed to take his wife upstairs, while she was sitting on a sofa in a corner with her face hidden, a look of awful gloom came over his own countenance. What could it be that his wife had done to the gentleman of so terrible a nature? You had better come up with me, he said to her with marital severity, and the poor cowed woman went with him tamely as might have done some patient Grizel. Not a word was spoken till they were in the room and the door was locked. Now, said he, what does it all mean? It was not till nearly two hours had passed that Mr. Brown came down the stairs very slowly, turning it all over in his mind. He now gradually heard the absolute and exact truth and had very gradually learned to believe it. It was first necessary that he should understand that his wife had told him many fibs during the night but as she constantly alleged to him, when he complained of her conduct in this respect, they had all been told on his behalf. Had she not struggled to get the mustard for his comfort? And when she had secured the prize, had she not hurried to put it on, as she had fondly thought, his throat? And though she had fibbed to him afterwards, had she not done so in order that he might not be troubled? You are not angry with me because I was in that man's room? she asked, looking full into his eyes, but not quite without a sob. He paused a moment and then declared, with something of a true husband's confidence in his tone, that he was not in the least angry with her on that account. Then she kissed him and bade him remember that after all, no one could really injure them. What harm has been done, Charles? The gentleman won't die because he had a mustard plaster on his throat. The worst is about Uncle John and dear Jane. They do think so much of Christmas Eve at Thompson Hall. Mr. Brown, when he again found himself in the clerk's office, requested that his card might be taken up to Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones had sent down his own card, which was handed to Mr. Brown. 
Mr. Barnaby Jones. And how was it all, sir? asked the clerk in a whisper, a whisper which had at the same time something of authoritative demand and something also of submissive respect. The clerk, of course, was anxious to know the mystery. It is hardly too much to say that everyone in that vast hotel was by this time anxious to have the mystery unraveled. But Mr. Brown would tell nothing to anyone. It is merely a matter to be explained between me and Mr. Jones, he said. The card was taken upstairs, and after a while he was ushered into Mr. Jones's room. It was, of course, that very 353 with which the reader is already acquainted. There was a fire burning, and the remains of Mr. Jones's breakfast were on the table. He was sitting in his dressing gown and slippers with his shirt open in the front and a silk handkerchief very loosely covering his throat. Mr. Brown, as he entered the room, of course looked with considerable anxiety at the gentleman of whose condition he had heard so sad an account. But he could only observe some considerable stiffness of movement and demeanor as Mr. Jones turned his head round to greet him. This has been a very disagreeable accident, Mr. Jones, said the husband of the lady. Accident? I don't know how it could have been an accident. It has been a most, uh, most, most, uh, most monstrous, er, uh, I, I must say, interference with a gentleman's privacy and personal comfort. Quite so, Mr. Jones, but on the part of the lady who is my wife. So I understand. I myself am about to become a married man, and I can understand what your feelings must be. I wish to say as little as possible to harrow them. Here Mr. Brown bowed. But there's the fact. She did do it. She thought it was me. What? I give you my word as a gentleman, Mr. Jones. When she was putting that mess upon you, she thought it was me. She did, indeed. Mr. Jones looked at his new acquaintance and shook his head. He did not think it possible that any woman would make such a mistake as that. I had a very sore throat, continued Mr. Brown, and indeed you may perceive it still. In saying this, he perhaps aggravated a little sign of his distemper. And I asked Mrs. Brown to go down and get one, just what she put on you. I wish you'd had it said Mr. Jones, putting his hand up to his neck. I wish I had, for your sake as well as mine, and for hers, poor woman. I don't know when she will get over the shock. I don't know when I shall, and it has stopped me on my journey. I was to have been tonight, this very night, this Christmas Eve, with the young lady I am engaged to marry. Of course I couldn't travel. The extent of the injury done nobody can imagine at present. It has been just as bad to me, sir. We were to have been with our family this Christmas Eve. There were particular reasons, most particular. We were only hindered from going by hearing of your condition. Why did she come into my room at all? I can't understand that. A lady always knows her own room at a hotel. 353, that's yours. 333, that's ours. Don't you see how easy it was? She had lost her way, and she was a little afraid lest the thing should fall down. I wish it had with all my heart. That's how it was. Now I'm sure, Mr. Jones, you'll take a lady's apology. It was a most unfortunate mistake, most unfortunate, but what more can be said? 
Mr. Jones gave himself up to reflection for a few moments before he replied to this. He supposed that he was bound to believe the story as far as it went. At any rate, he did not know how he could say that he did not believe it. It seemed to him to be almost incredible, especially incredible in regard to that personal mistake. For, except that they both had long beards and brown beards, Mr. Jones thought there was no point of resemblance between himself and Mr. Brown. But still, even that, he felt, must be accepted. But then why had he been left, deserted, to undergo all those torments? She found out her mistake at last, I suppose, he said. Oh, yes. Why didn't she wake a fellow and take it off again? Ah. She can't have cared very much for a man's comfort when she went away and left him like that. Ah, there was the difficulty, uh, Mr. Jones. Difficulty? Who? Who was it that had done it? To come to me in my bedroom in the middle of the night and put that thing on me and then leave it there and say nothing about it. It seems to me deuced like a practical joke. No, Mr. Jones. That's the way I look at it, said Mr. Jones, plucking up his courage. There isn't a woman in all England, or in all France, less likely to do such a thing than my wife. And she's as steady as a rock, Mr. Jones, and would no more go into another gentleman's bedroom and joke than... Um, oh dear, no. You're going to be a married man yourself. Unless all this makes a difference, said Mr. Jones, almost in tears. I had sworn that I would be with her this Christmas Eve. Oh, Mr. Jones... I cannot believe that will interfere with your happiness. How could you think that your wife, as is to be, would do such a thing as that in joke? She wouldn't do it at all, joke or anyway. How can you tell what accident might happen to anyone? She'd have wakened the man then afterwards, I'm sure she would. She would never have left him to suffer that way. Her heart is too soft. Why didn't she send you to wake me? and explain it all. That's what my Jane would have done, and I should have gone and wakened him. But the whole thing is impossible, he said, shaking his head as he remembered that he and his Jane were not in condition as yet to undergo any such mutual trouble. At last, Mr. Jones was brought to acknowledge that nothing more could be done. The lady sent her apology and told her story, and he must bear the trouble and inconvenience to which she had subjected him. He still, however, had his own opinion about her conduct generally, and could not be brought to give any sign of amity. He simply bowed when Mr. Brown was hoping to induce him to shake hands, and sent no word of pardon to the great offender. The matter, however, was so far concluded that there was no further question of police interference, nor any doubt, but that the lady with her husband was to be allowed to leave Paris by the night train. The nature of the accident probably became known to all. Mr. Brown was interrogated by many, and though he professed to declare that he would answer no question, nevertheless he found it better to tell the clerk something of the truth than to allow the matter to be shrouded in mystery. It is to be feared that Mr. Jones, who did not once show himself through the day, but who employed the hours in endeavoring to assuage the injury done him, still lived in the conviction that the lady had played a practical joke on him. But the subject of such a joke never talks about it, and Mr. Jones could not be induced to speak even by friendly adherence of the night porter. Mrs. Brown also clung to the seclusion of her own bedroom, 
never once stirring from it till the time came in which she was to be taken down to the omnibus. Upstairs she ate her meals, and upstairs she passed her time in packing and unpacking, and in requesting that telegrams might be sent repeatedly to Thompson Hall. In the course of the day, two such telegrams were sent, in the latter of which the Thompson family were assured that the Browns would arrive probably in time for breakfast on Christmas Day, certainly in time for church. She asked more than once tenderly after Mr. Jones's welfare, but could obtain no information. He was very cross, that's all I know about it, said Mr. Brown. Then she made a remark as to the gentleman's Christian name, which appeared on the card as Barnaby. My sister's husband's name will be Burnaby, she said, and this man's Christian name is Barnaby. That's all the difference, said her husband with ill-timed jocularity. We all know how people under a cloud are apt to fail in asserting their personal dignity. On the former day, a separate vehicle had been ordered by Mr. Brown to take himself and his wife to the station. But now, after his misfortunes, he contented himself with such provision as the people at the hotel might make for him. At the appointed hour, he brought his wife down, thickly veiled. There were many strangers as she passed through the hall, ready to look at the lady who had done that wonderful thing in the dead of night, but none could see a feature of her face as she stepped across the hall and was hurried into the omnibus. And there were many eyes also on Mr. Jones, who followed her very quickly, for he also, in spite of his sufferings, was leaving Paris on the evening in order that he might be with his English friends on Christmas Day. He, as he went through the crowd, assumed an air of great dignity, to which perhaps something was added by his endeavors, as he walked to save his poor throat from irritation. He, too, got into the same omnibus, stumbling over the feet of his enemy in the dark. At the station they got their tickets, one close after the other, and then were brought into each other's presence in the waiting room. I think it must be acknowledged that here Mr. Jones was conscious not only of her presence, but of her consciousness of his presence, and that he assumed an attitude, as though he should have said, Now do you think it possible for me to believe that you mistook me for your husband? She was perfectly quiet, but sat through that quarter of an hour with her face continually veiled. Mr. Brown had made some little overture of conversation to Mr. Jones, but Mr. Jones, though he did mutter some reply, showed plainly enough that he had no desire for further intercourse. Then came the accustomed stampede, the awful rush, the internecine struggle in which seats had to be found. Seats, I fancy, are regularly found, even by the most tardy, but it always appears that every British father and every British husband is actuated at these stormy moments by a conviction that unless he prove himself a very Hercules, he and his daughters and his wife will be left desolate in Paris. Mr. Brown was quite Herculean, carrying two bags and a hat box in his own hands, besides the cloaks, the coats, the rugs, the sticks, and the umbrellas. But when he had got himself and his wife well seated, with their faces to the engine, with a corner seat for her, there was Mr. Jones immediately opposite to her. Mr. Jones, as soon as he perceived the inconvenience of his position, made a scramble for another place. But he was too late. In that contiguity, the journey as far as Dover had to be made. She, poor woman, never once took up her veil. There he sat without closing an eye, stiff as a ramrod, sometimes showing by little uneasy gestures, 
that the trouble at his neck was still there, but never speaking a word and hardly moving a limb. Crossing from Calais to Dover, the lady was, of course, separated from her victim. The passage was very bad, and she more than once reminded her husband how well it would have been with them now had they pursued their journey as she had intended, as though they had been detained in Paris by his fault. Mr. Jones, as he laid himself down on his back, gave himself up to wondering whether any man before him had ever been made subject to such absolute injustice. Now and again he put his hand up to his own beard and began to doubt whether it could have been moved as it must have been moved without waking him. What if chloroform had been used? Many such suspicions crossed his mind during the misery of that passage. They were again together in the same railway carriage from Dover to London. They had now got used to the close neighborhood and knew how to endure each the presence of the other. But as yet, Mr. Jones had never seen the lady's face. He longed to know what were the features of the woman who had been so blind, if indeed that story were true. Or if it were not true, of what like was the woman who would dare in the middle of the night to play such a trick as that? But still she kept her veil close over her face. From Cannon Street, the Browns took their departure in a cab for the Liverpool Street Station, whence they would be conveyed by the Eastern Counties Railway to Stratford. Now, at any rate, their troubles were over. They would be in ample time, not only for Christmas Day church, but for Christmas Day breakfast. It will be just the same as getting in there last night, said Mr. Brown as he walked across the platform to place his wife in the carriage for Stratford. She entered it first, and as she did so, there she saw Mr. Jones seated in the corner. Hitherto she had borne his presence well, but now she could not restrain herself from a little start and a little scream. He bowed his head very slightly, as though acknowledging the compliment, and then down she dropped her veil. When they arrived at Stratford, the journey being over in a quarter of an hour, Jones was out of the carriage even before the Browns. There is Uncle John's carriage, said Mrs. Brown, thinking that now, at any rate, she would be able to free herself from the presence of this terrible stranger. No doubt, he was a handsome man to look at, but on no face so sternly hostile had she ever before fixed her eyes. She did not, perhaps, reflect that the owner of no other face had ever been so deeply injured by herself. Chapter 5 Mrs. Brown at Thompson Hall Please, sir, we were to ask for Mr. Jones, said the servant, putting his head into the carriage, after both Mr. and Mrs. Brown had seated themselves. Mr. Jones! exclaimed the husband. Why ask for Mr. Jones? demanded the wife. The servant was about to tender some explanation when Mr. Jones stepped up and said that he was Mr. Jones. We are going to Thompson Hall, said the lady with great vigor. So am I, said Mr. Jones with much dignity. It was, however, arranged that he should sit with the coachman as there was a rumble behind for the other servant. The luggage was put into a cart and away all went for Thompson Hall. "'What do you think about it, Mary?' whispered Mr. Brown after a pause. He was evidently awestruck by the horror of the occasion. "'I cannot make it out at all. What do you think?' "'I don't know what to think. Jones going to Thompson Hall.' "'He's a very good-looking young man,' said Mrs. Brown. "'Well, that's as people think. 
a stiff, stuck-up fellow, I should say. Up to this moment, he has never forgiven you for what you did to him. Would you have forgiven his wife, Charles, if she had done it to you? He hasn't got a wife, yet. How do you know? He is coming home now to be married, said Mr. Brown. He expects to meet the young lady this very Christmas day. He told me so. That was one of the reasons why he was so angry at being stopped by what you did last night. I suppose he knows Uncle John, or he wouldn't be going to the hall, said Mrs. Brown. I can't make it out, said Mr. Brown, shaking his head. He looks quite like a gentleman, said Mrs. Brown, though he has been so stiff. Jones, Barnaby Jones, you show it was Barnaby. That was the name on the card. Not Barnaby? asked Mrs. Brown. It was Barnaby Jones on the card, just the same as Barnaby Rudge. And as for looking like a gentleman, I'm by no means quite so sure. A gentleman takes an apology when it's offered. Perhaps, my dear, that depends on the condition of his throat. If you had had a mustard plaster on all night, you might not have liked it. Uh, but here we are at Thompson Hall at last. Thompson Hall was an old brick mansion, standing within a huge iron gate with a gravel sweep before it. It had stood there before Stratford was a town or even a suburb and had then been known by the name Bow Place. But it had been in the hands of the present family for the last 30 years and was now known far and wide as Thompson Hall, a comfortable, roomy, old-fashioned place, perhaps a little dark and dull to look at, but much more substantially built than most of our modern villas. Mrs. Brown jumped with alacrity from the carriage and with a quick step entered the home of her forefathers. Her husband followed her more leisurely, but he too felt that he was at home at Thompson Hall. Then Mr. Jones walked in also, but he looked as though he were not at all at home. It was still very early, and no one of the family was as yet down. In these circumstances, it was almost necessary that something should be said to Mr. Jones. Do you know Mr. Thompson? asked Mr. Brown. I'd never had the pleasure of seeing him as yet, answered Mr. Jones very stiffly. Oh, I didn't know, uh, because you said you were coming here. And I have come here. Are you friends of Mr. Thompson? Oh, dear, yes, said Mrs. Brown. I was a Thompson myself before I married. Oh, indeed, said Mr. Jones. How very odd, very odd indeed. During this time, the luggage was being brought into the house, and two old family servants were offering them assistance. Would the newcomers like to go up to their bedrooms? Then the housekeeper, Mrs. Green, intimated with a wink that Miss Jane would, she was sure, be down quite immediately. The present moment, however, was still very unpleasant. The lady probably had made her guess as to the mystery, but the two gentlemen were still altogether in the dark. Mrs. Brown had no doubt declared her parentage. But Mr. Jones, with such a multitude of strange facts crowding on his mind, had been slow to understand her. Being somewhat suspicious by nature, he was beginning to think whether possibly the mustard had been put by this lady on his throat with some reference to his connection with Thompson Hall. Could it be that she, for some reason of her own, had wished to prevent his coming and had contrived this untoward stratagem out of her brain? Or had she wished to make him ridiculous to the Thompson family, to whom, as a family, he was at present unknown? It was becoming more and more improbable to him that the whole thing should have been an accident. 
when, after the first horrid torments of that morning, in which he had in his agony invoked the assistance of the night porter, he had begun to reflect on his situation. He had determined that it would be better that nothing further should be said about it. What would life be worth to him if he were to be known wherever he went as the man who had been mustard plastered in the middle of the night by a strange lady? The worst of a practical joke is that the remembrance of the absurd condition sticks so long to the sufferer. At the hotel, that night porter, who had possessed himself of the handkerchief and had read the name and had connected that name with the occupant of 333, whom he had found wandering about the house with some strange purpose, had not permitted the thing to sleep. The porter had pressed the matter home against the Browns and had produced the interview which has been recorded. But during the whole of that day, Mr. Jones had been resolving that he would never again either think of the Browns or speak of them. A great injury had been done to him, a most outrageous injustice, but it was a thing which had to be endured. A horrid woman had come across him like a nightmare. All he could do was to endeavor to forget the terrible visitation. Such had been his resolve, in making which he had passed that long day in Paris. And now the Browns had stuck to him from the moment of his leaving his room. He had been forced to travel with them, but had traveled with them as a stranger. He had tried to comfort himself with the reflection that at every fresh stage he would shake them off. In one railway, after another, the vicinity had been bad. But still they were strangers. Now he found himself in the same house with them, where of course the story would be told. Had not the thing been done on purpose that the story might be told there at Thompson Hall? Mrs. Brown had acceded to the proposition of the housekeeper, and was about to be taken to her room, when there was heard a sound of footsteps along the passage above and on the stairs, and a young lady came bounding on to the scene. "'You have all of you come a quarter of an hour earlier than we thought possible,' said the young lady. "'I did so mean to be up to receive you.' With that, she passed her sister on the stairs, for the young lady was Miss Jane Thompson, sister to our Mrs. Brown, and hurried down into the hall. Here, Mr. Brown, who had ever been on affectionate terms with his sister-in-law, put himself forward to receive her embraces. But she, apparently not noticing him in her ardor, rushed on and threw herself onto the breast of the other gentleman. This is my Charles, she said. Oh, Charles, I thought you never would be here. Mr. Charles Burnaby Jones, for such was his name since he had inherited the Joneses' property in Pembrokeshire, received into his arms the ardent girl of his heart, with all that love and devotion to which she was entitled, but could not do so without some external shrinking from her embrace. Oh, Charles, what is it? she said. Nothing, dearest. Only, only. Then he looked piteously up into Mrs. Brown's face, as though imploring her not to tell the story. Perhaps, Jane, you had better introduce us, said Mrs. Brown. Introduce you? I thought you had been traveling together and staying at the same hotel and all that. So we have, but people may be in the same hotel without knowing each other, and we have traveled all the way home with Mr. Jones without in the least knowing who he was. Oh, how very odd! Do you mean you have never spoken? Not a word, said Mrs. Brown. I do so hope you'll love each other, said Jane. It shan't be my fault if we don't, said Mrs. Brown. I'm sure it shan't be mine. 
said Mr. Brown, tendering his hand to the other gentleman. The various feelings of the moment were too much for Mr. Jones, and he could not respond quite as he should have done. But as he was taken upstairs to his room, he determined that he would make the best of it. The owner of the house was old Uncle John. He was a bachelor, and with him lived various members of the family. There was the great Thompson of them all, Cousin Robert, who is now Member of Parliament for the Essex Flats, and young John, as a certain enterprising Thompson of the age of forty was usually called. And then there was old Aunt Bess, and among other young branches there was Miss Jane Thompson, who is now engaged to marry Mr. Charles Burnaby Jones. As it happened, no other member of the family had as yet seen Mr. Burnaby Jones, and he, being by nature of a retiring disposition, felt himself to be ill at ease when he came into the breakfast parlor among all the Thompsons. He was known to be a gentleman of good family and ample means, and all the Thompsons had approved of the match. But during that first Christmas breakfast, he did not seem to accept his condition jovially. His own Jane sat beside him, but then on the other side sat Mrs. Brown. She assumed an immediate intimacy, as women know how to do on such occasions being determined from the very first to regard her sister's husband as a brother. But he still feared her. She was still to him the woman who had come to him in the dead of night with that horrid mixture, and had then left him. It was so odd that both of you should have been detained on the very same day, said Jane. Uh, yes, it was odd, said Mrs. Brown, with a smile, looking round upon her neighbor. It was abominably bad weather, you know, said Brown. But you were both so determined to come, said the old gentleman. When we got the two telegrams at the same moment, we were sure that there had been some agreement between you. Not exactly an agreement, said Mrs. Brown, whereupon Mr. Jones looked as grim as death. I'm sure there is something more than we understand yet, said the Member of Parliament. Then they all went to church, as a united family ought to do on Christmas Day, and came home to a fine old English early dinner at three o'clock a sirloin of beef a foot and a half broad, a turkey as big as an ostrich, a plum pudding bigger than the turkey, and two or three dozen mince pies. Well, that's a, that's a very large bit of beef, said Mr. Jones, who had not lived much in England latterly. It won't look so large, said the old gentleman, when all our friends downstairs have had their say to it. A plum pudding on Christmas Day can't be too big, he said again if the cook will but take enough time over it. I never knew a bit go to waste yet. By this time, there had been some explanation as to past events between the two sisters. Mrs. Brown had indeed told Jane all about it, how ill her husband had been, how she had been forced to go down and look for the mustard, and then what she had done with the mustard. I don't think they are a bit alike, you know, Mary, if you mean that, said Jane. Well, no, perhaps not quite alike. I only saw his beard, you know. No doubt it was stupid, but I did it. Why didn't you take it off again? asked the sister. Oh, Jane, if you'd only think of it, could you? Then, of course, all that occurred was explained, how they had been stopped on their journey, how Brown had made the best apology in his power, and how Jones had traveled with them and had never spoken a word. The gentleman had only taken his new name a week since, but of course had had his new card printed immediately. I'm sure I should have thought of it, if they hadn't made a mistake with the first name, 
Charles said it was like Barnaby Rudge. Not at all like Barnaby Rudge, said Jane. Charles Burnaby Jones is a very good name. Oh, very good indeed, and I'm sure that after a little bit, he won't be all the worst for the accident. Before dinner, the secret had been told no further, but still there had crept among the Thompsons, and indeed downstairs also, among the retainers, a feeling that there was a secret. The old housekeeper was sure that Miss Mary, as she still called Mrs. Brown, had something to tell if she could only be induced to tell it, and that this something had reference to Mr. Jones's personal comfort. The head of the family, who was a sharp old gentleman, felt this also, and the member of Parliament, who had an idea that he specially should never be kept in the dark, was almost angry. Mr. Jones, suffering from some kindred feeling throughout the dinner, remained silent and unhappy. When two or three toasts had been drunk, the Queen's health, the old gentleman's health, the young couple's health, Brown's health, and the general health of all the Thompsons, then tongues were loosened and a question was asked. I know that there has been something doing in Paris between these young people that we haven't heard as yet, said the uncle. Then Mrs. Brown laughed, and Jane, laughing too, gave Mr. Jones to understand that she, at any rate, knew all about it. If there is a mystery, I hope it will be told at once, said the member of Parliament angrily. Come, Brown, what is it? asked another male cousin. Well, there was an accident. I'd rather Jones should tell it, said he. Jones's brow became blacker than thunder, but he did not say a word. You mustn't be angry with Mary, Jane whispered into her lover's ear. Come, Mary, you never were slow at talking, said the uncle. I do hate this kind of thing, said the member of parliament. I will tell it all, said Mrs. Brown, very nearly in tears, or else pretending to be very nearly in tears. I know I was very wrong, and I do beg his pardon. And if he won't say that he forgives me, I never shall be happy again. Then she clasped her hands and turning round looked him piteously in the face. Oh yes, I do forgive you, said Mr. Jones. My brother, said she, throwing her arms around him and kissing him. He recoiled from the embrace, but I think that he attempted to return the kiss. And now I will tell the whole story, said Mrs. Brown, and she told it acknowledging her fault with true contrition and swearing that she would atone for it by lifelong sisterly devotion. And you mustard blastered the wrong man, said the old gentleman, almost rolling off his chair with delight. I did, said Mrs. Brown, sobbing, and I think that no woman ever suffered as I suffered. And Jones wouldn't let you leave the hotel? It was the handkerchief stopped us, said Brown. If it had turned out to be anybody else, said the Member of Parliament, the results might have been most serious, not to say discreditable. That's nonsense, Robert, said Mrs. Brown, who was disposed to resent the use of so severe a word, even from the legislator cousin. In a strange gentleman's bedroom, he continued, it only shows that what I have always said is quite true. You should never go to bed in a strange house without locking your door. Nevertheless, it was a very jovial meeting, and before the evening was over, Mr. Jones was happy, and had been brought to acknowledge that the mustard plaster would probably not do him any permanent injury. The End
poor Mrs. Brown. I can't help but feel for her. You know, have you ever tried to do something and it just is like you're plagued with one bad thing after another so that in the end you thought, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have even done this to begin with. Well, and that concludes our story, Christmas at Thompson Hall by Anthony Trollope. I hope you enjoyed that story. It's it's quite a silly story, but but I've really enjoyed reading it. I think this would actually make a good like a good stage play or something. I think people could have a lot of fun with that. But yeah, what do you think of the story? What did you think about it? I hope you were able to enjoy it and it brought you some Christmas cheer this year. I know I'll be finishing up my yearly reading of A Christmas Carol. And this story, Christmas at Thompson Hall, is probably one that is in my Christmas canon. Now, I don't read this one every year, but I, I've read it about once every couple of years or so. But it's, it's in my rotation. One of the things I love about Christmas is the stories that are told. And I think that's in part why I'm drawn to so many of the Victorian stories, because they were written and were meant to be read aloud and to be told to the family as they gather around the fire on Christmas Eve, telling ghost stories and other holiday stories. And as the years went on during the Victorian age, uh, children would receive books for, for Christmas as gifts, uh, books that often taught a morality lesson or some kind of story behave, you know, that taught a behavior that was good and acceptable, for, you know, for upstanding gentlemen and young gentlemen and young ladies. Uh, so that's why you get the occasional really over-the-top morality and, and moral of the story. Um, I guess the moral of the story in this Christmas at Thompson Hall is that if you are traveling for Christmas this year, please make sure that you lock your door <laughs> so that you don't have a strange woman visit you in the night and leave a mustard poultice on your chest and throat. Okay. Uh, it's just it's so silly. Well, that's all I'm going to have for today. I want to make sure to leave time for you and your family to spend together. But thank you for taking a few minutes to spend Christmas Eve with me. I've got family coming in. My son will be home from college. And we're going to be together around our Christmas tree, celebrating the best day of the year, celebrating for the best reason of all, celebrating Christmas. So whatever it is you do, whether you, you attend a church service, whether you stay home, whether you are with family, or perhaps you're just spending a quiet Christmas home by yourself, reflecting on the day, watching your favorite movies, reading your favorite stories, however you celebrate, I hope that you're able to and that it brings you joy. I'll see you tomorrow. And until then, have a very Merry Christmas.